people and sent off into exile. So he's in, he's in um, identifying himself as a fellow partaker in this kind of tribulation. Like them, John was at that moment suffering severe persecution for the cause of Christ, having been exiled with other criminals. Uh, so he could identify with suffering of believers to whom he wrote. So there was definitely suffering going on for Christians, persecution in the first century church, and um, John is identifying with his original hearers. He was part of the same kingdom as his readers, the sphere of salvation, the redeemed community over which Jesus was Lord and King. So he, he identifies with them in that way as well, same kingdom. Um, and then he identifies with them in the matter of perseverance, uh, the fact that they must persevere through the current persecution. He further describes these experiences as being in Jesus. So suffering persecution for the cause of Christ, belonging to his kingdom, and patiently enduring trials are distinctly Christian experiences. And so uh, there's an application here for us, uh, for, all, for the church in all time, all the way up to today, is um, Jesus described during his earthly ministry the fact that uh, we would be persecuted. And so here we have it happening in the first century and we see it around the world we have always seen it around the world uh, we see the uh, the emails every week from Larry about the persecuted church we see really severe persecution in many areas of the church and and then it's been um, relatively tranquil for the church in the United States for most of the history of our country. Uh, but we even see that beginning to change a little bit in our own day. And uh, of this, we should not be surprised. Jesus told us during his earthly ministry that there would be persecution. His church in the first century was experiencing persecution. The third church throughout history has experienced persecution. The, the church throughout the world that we live in today is experiencing persecution, and so we shouldn't be totally shocked if it comes to the church here in the United States of America. Yes. Well, yes, they did. They did imprison at least two pastors in Canada during the uh, the COVID lockdowns. Uh, as far as I know, that's pretty close to home. As far as I know, there there were not pastors that were actually imprisoned here in the United States, but there were churches that were fined in California uh, for having their having church services. Yes, that's right. So he's pointing to Christ, not to himself. And that's how John always was. He was always pointing to Christ, not himself. That's how Paul was, always pointing to Christ, not himself. That's how Peter was once he was sufficiently chastened. Peter was like that as well. And so, um, yes, so good point. Uh, his humility is in that uh, this vision is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not a revelation of John. So, you know, notice the, uh, the, the book doesn't start out the revelation of John. It starts out the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and John is uh, very faithful to that fact that it's not about him. 
it's about Christ. Good, good, good observation. Any, any other, any other questions or comments? Yes, Raymond. Yeah. So, uh, so the, yes, there were some churches that were fined and and went to court. Um, it wasn't just MacArthur's church. There was another one in San Jose where they went to court a couple of times, and uh, their elders were threatened with personal fines, um, not just a corporate fine of the church, but personally fining the elders if they chose to keep the churches open. That was a, a threat, but I don't think that threat was ever actually carried out. Go ahead. Notice that uh, when there, when when Christianity was outlawed, um, the, there were there were persecutions, and the Christians bore that persecution. Notice, notice the word perseverance here. Uh, persevere under persecution, um, and so that has been the model all the way back to the first century: is perseverance under persecution. Um, and so James Coates, for example, went to prison. You know, he didn't pull out a gun and try to shoot the police who were arresting him. He, he, he went to prison. Um, he persevered under that, that persecution. Uh, yeah. Any other uh, questions or comments? Okay, let's move on then. Uh, when he received this vision, John was in exile on this island called Patmos, and he identifies that. Uh, it's a barren volcanic. Has anybody ever been there? So yeah, so some of you have been there. What's what's it look like? Essentially, he's on a barren rock in the middle of the ocean. Um, it's a volcanic island in the Aegean Sea. It's only ten miles long and five or six miles wide, and it's about forty miles offshore from the city of Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. Um, as a criminal, the conditions under which he lived would have been harsh. Uh, he there was hard labor. He wasn't just out there doing whatever he wanted to do. It was a labor, a, a penal labor camp. Uh, and so he would have had to do hard labor. He would have had insufficient food and clothing and had to sleep on the bare ground. And that would have taken a toll on a 90-year-old man. Um, so he's about 90 years old at this time. And so he's living on this rock in a cave and doing hard labor as a 90-year-old man. So uh, this is persecution. He's experiencing persecution. Um, and his only crime was faithfulness to the Word of God and testimony of Jesus. That's what he identifies. That's why they arrested him. That's why they sent him into exile, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He suffered exile for his faithful, uncompromising preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is persecution for his testimony to Jesus, testimony of Jesus. So that's the background. He receives this vision while he's in the Spirit. His experience transcended the bounds of normal human apprehension. So he's under the Spirit's control. He, he gets this vision that's not uh, it's not his sense of sight. It's uh, This is something different. Uh, he gets a vision that's kind of on another plane of experience or perception than normal human sense. And God supernaturally reveals these things to him. Uh, there, ha- there were similar uh, circumstances of visions like this. Uh, Ezekiel uh, had visions like this. Uh, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, had a vision like this. Uh, Paul, in Acts chapter 22, and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, describes visions like this. So there have been similar. God has revealed himself in this way in, the, in other circumstances that we have re- recorded in the Word of God. Uh, and here's John having a vision like that. Uh, he received this vision on the Lord's Day. Uh, so that uh, that Greek phrase on the Lord's Day appears only here in the New Testament. 
the Lord's Day. Uh, that Greek phrase, Kyriake Himera, is different from the one that's translated Day of the Lord. So the Lord's Day is not the Day of the Lord. It's a different Greek phrase. The Day of the Lord is an eschatological term about something in the future. The Lord's Day is just Sunday. Uh, the phrase Lord's Day became the customary way of referring to Sunday because Christ's resurrection took place on Sunday, the Lord's Day. So uh, by the second century, we see that as the common way of referring to Sunday in the church, the Lord's Day, by the second century. But this is the only place it actually takes, uh, we actually see it in the New Testament, that Greek phrase, the Lord's Day, here in Revelation. Uh, he received his commission to record the vision in dramatic fashion. Uh, so, um, I was in the Spirit in the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it's a dramatic revelation. Uh, there's a loud voice. Uh, we've seen that before in Ezekiel, for example. There's a loud voice. Uh, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's sounding to John in its piercing, commanding clarity like the sound of a trumpet. So John describes this loud voice as like a trumpet. He's trying to describe this vision. So this vision is uh, something that's beyond human senses, beyond human uh, full human understanding. God is revealing things to him, and John's describing those things the best way he can. Yes, so he's experiencing this vision and describing what he's experiencing. Uh, and, and so he, that's how John describes it. The, it's a loud voice, and it sounds to him like a trumpet. Um, the sovereign, powerful voice from heaven commanded John, write in a book or scroll what you see. So uh, books at the time, of course, were not like uh, these things that we have today. Uh, most likely he was writing on some kind of a parchment or scroll, uh, papyrus or animal skin, something like that. Um, but that's the idea. Write it down. Write down this vision that, that I'm giving you. Um, and so that's what John did. Uh, there are 12 visions recorded in the book of Revelation. 12 that, um, revelations that, that where John's told to write what he saw. Uh, 12 times he's told that. Um, and this is the first one, the first of 12, where John's had given a vision and told to write down what he sees. And there's one, a 13th, where he's given a vision and told not to write. Uh, chapter 10, when we get there, we'll see uh, the seven thunders say something, and he's told, don't write down what the seven thunders said. So 12 times he's given a vision, told, write down what you saw. This is the very first one, first of the 12. And then there's this other odd one that we'll get to where... He, something's revealed to John, and only John. He's not allowed to write it down. After writing the vision, John has to send it. So he writes it down first, and then he sends it to the seven churches. And the seven churches are listed. There are particular churches that existed in the first century at, at particular cities, all in Asia Minor. And I'll show you a map here in a minute. Uh, these seven churches were chosen because they were, low, they were key cities, of the seven postal districts into which Asia was divided. So in those days, there was a Roman postal system, and those were the, these cities were the seven postal districts of Asia. And so they were the central points for disseminating information. So if you wanted to disseminate 
information in that province of the Roman Empire, uh, those are the seven locations that you would go to. So it's strategic. Uh, the seven cities appear in order, the order that a messenger traveling on the great circular road that linked them would visit them. After landing at Miletus, the messenger or messengers bearing the book of Revelation would have traveled north to Ephesus, the city nearest to Miletus, which is the landing from Patmos, then in a clockwise circle to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it all makes geographical sense. Copies of Revelation would have been distributed to each church. And so here's a map. And so, so here's Here's Patmos right here. The landing from Patmos is at Miletus, and just north of Miletus is Ephesus, and that's the first church that's listed. And then the next one is the next one north on the post road, Smyrna. And then the next one on the post road, Pergamon. And the next one on the post road, Thyatira. The next one on the post road, Sardis. The next one on the post road, Philadelphia. The next one on the post road, Laodicea. And so um, these, these things all fit together. They, they make historical sense. And so we're not surprised by that, that, that God's word is true. It's true in everything it talks about. And, um, and God knows what he's doing. Um, and so we see that over and over and over and over again in many different instances in Scripture where there are just little details that are not even, not even theologically significant in and of themselves, but they just show God as a God of order. He knows what he's doing. He does things in a, in a manner that, uh, that makes sense. If you have all the facts, they make sense. And in many cases, of course, God does things and we don't understand them because we don't have all the facts. But if you do have all the facts, everything that God does makes perfect sense. And this one, we can see it from looking at a map why he did what he did. And particular order that they're listed makes uh, perfect sense here. Okay, um, so he's, he, he hears this voice that's like a trumpet that tells him to write things down and send them to these churches. Um, and then he turns to see, so evidently the, the voice was speaking from behind him. Um, and then in verse 12 we see this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So now he turns and sees the source of this voice. So first he describes the circumstances in which he received it. John then related the vision itself. Uh, this revealing look at the present work of the glorified Son of God discloses seven aspects of Christ's constant ministry to his church. And so this is the reason for this vision being first. It's the fact that he's present with his church and he, he, he's, he's got a constant ministry to his church. He empowers, intercedes, purifies, speaks authoritatively, controls, protects, and reflects his glory through his church. And we're gonna, I'm going to talk about all those things as we go through these verses. So at the outset of the vision, John had his back to the voice. He turns and he sees the voice that was speaking with him. Uh, and as he does so, the first thing he sees are these seven golden lampstands. Uh, we find out in verse 20 that those are the seven churches. So verse 20 says, those golden lampstands, seven churches. Why are they gold? They're golden because gold was the most precious metal. 
Uh, the church is to God the most beautiful and valuable entity on earth. So valuable that Jesus was willing to purchase it with his own blood. So that's why the lampstands that represent the churches are gold, the most precious metal. Seven is the number of completeness. We talked about this last time in regards to the Holy Spirit. It's seven spirits because the Holy Spirit is perfect and it's and complete. And so seven is the number of completeness. We see it in other places in Scripture as well. And the seven churches, therefore, symbolize all churches in general. So the seven churches are, in fact, seven real churches in the first century. But also, the fact that there are seven represents all churches in general for all time. So uh, we often see this in prophecy. Prophecy has an immediate meaning to the immediate audience that is receiving it. It also has a broad and general meaning for all time. And so these letters are definitely for seven real churches in the first century. They are also seven churches meant to represent all churches for all time. Um, and so uh, there are actual churches in real places, but they're also symbolic of the kinds of churches that exist throughout all church history. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about this when we get to chapter 2. We're going to go through each church and see what kind of church each was and see that we see that kind of church all throughout history as well, even down to the present time. So what do we see in the middle of the lampstands? In the middle of the lampstands, we see one like a son of man. In his incarnation, his first coming, he was actually a man, clothed in uh, human flesh. He was, he was a man. He was walking around. John knew this very well. John knew him as well as any man. He had eaten with him and slept on the ground in a, in a group with him and talked with him like, like any uh, man would talk to another man. He knew him as the man Jesus. But now he's like a son of man. Not a, not, he doesn't just say a son of man, he says like a son of man, because there's something different now. The glorified Lord of the church moving among his churches. This is what we see. The seven lampstands, and right in the middle, there is Jesus, the Lord of the church, right in the center of it. Uh, Jesus had promised his continued presence with his church. In Matthew 28.20, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the Great Commission ends with that. Um, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He had promised that. Uh, John had been there when Jesus promised that. And so there's Jesus right in the midst of the seven lampstands, right in the midst of his churches. He's there. He's present, just like he promised he would be. That's what John sees. Uh, the living Christ indwells his church to lead and empower it. Uh, believers personally and collectively have the privilege of drawing on that power through continual communion with him. He's right there with the churches. That's what this vision is, is all about. Jesus right there amidst his churches. So uh, then, then uh, he's, John starts to notice things about this one who, who is like a son of man. The first thing he notes is he's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. Uh, we see robes like this in other places in Scripture. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6. Such robes were worn by royalty. We see that in several places in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 8, 1 Samuel 18 and 24, 1 Kings 22, and many other places we see descriptions of uh, royal robes, uh, robes like this. We also see prophets wearing robes. 
So kings and prophets uh, wearing robes, 1 Samuel 28. But the word translated poderes here, uh, this Greek word was used most frequently in six of its seven occurrences in the Septuagint. So now the Septuagint is a Greek version of the Old Testament. So um, a couple hundred years before Christ, Hebrew was becoming um, a less and less frequently used language. And so um, the Hebrew scribes decided to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And they did that, and it's called the Septuagint. The uh, Septuagint is seven, means 70. There were 70 scholars, evidently, that did this translation. And so there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so we can look, we can look at Greek words in the New Testament, and we look, and can, we can look to see where we find that same Greek word in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so this same Greek word that's translated robe here in the New Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, occurs seven times. Six of those seven times, it describes robes worn by the high priest. Um, and so, um, this we, we see robes for uh, prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament, but this particular Greek word is most often used of robes worn by the high priest. And so, while Christ is biblically presented as prophet and king, and his majesty and dignity are emphasized throughout, the robe here pictured, uh, Christ wearing this robe, uh, pictures Christ in his role as the great high priest of his people. Um, and the fact that he was girded across his chest with a gold sash reinforces that interpretation, since the high priest in the Old Testament wore a sash like that. We see that in Exodus 28 and Leviticus 16. So he's in high priestly robes here. That's what John sees. Having described Christ's clothing in verse 13, then in 14 we see his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So he moves on from describing the clothing to describing his person in verse 14 and 15. The first few features he depicts, um, the first few features depict Christ's work of chastening and purifying his church. His description of Christ's head and hair is an obvious reference to Daniel 7. We, get, we have the same kind of picture in the prophetic vision of Daniel in Daniel 7, where similar language describes the Ancient of Days, God the Father. This parallel description affirms Christ's deity. So there's many places in the scripture that are very clear affirmations of Christ's deity, and this is just one of them, that Christ is described, this vision of Christ, is obviously parallel to a vision in Daniel 7 that was obviously about God the Father. So this is the divinity of Christ here uh, being clearly uh, demonstrated. If we look at, uh, if we have Scripture interpreting Scripture, and we look at the whole counsel of the Word of God, uh, he possesses the same attribute of holy knowledge and wisdom as the Father. And then continuing this description of the glorified Christ, he notes that his eyes were like a flame of fire. So his searching, revealing gaze penetrates to the depths of his church. So he's there in the midst of his church, and he has this, these blazing, flaming eyes. Uh, he's searching out. He's revealing 
revealing to him with piercing clarity the reality of everything there is to know about his church. So the omniscient Lord of the church will not fail to recognize and deal with sin in his church and we see that we're going to see that in chapter 2 that that this the Lord Jesus Christ sees everything about his church um, nothing is hidden from his eyes these flaming eyes that John sees and then we see his feet described like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. This continues a sequence of making a clear reference to judgment on sinners in the church. So why is that? So kings in ancient times, so Christ is the king of kings, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Kings in ancient times sat on elevated thrones. So those who would be judged would be beneath the king's feet, literally beneath the king's feet. So he's up on a throne, his feet are here, and, and you're down here. So you're looking up at his feet. Um, the feet of a king thus became came to symbolize his authority. You're under the foot of the king, under the feet of the king. So here we have pictured the red-hot glowing feet of the Lord Jesus, and that pictures him moving through his church to exercise his chastening authority, ready to deal out remedial pain if need be to sinning Christians, uh, exercising his authority. All these, all these symbols of his authority over his church here. Um, it's the Lord's love for his redeemed sinner that causes him to pursue their holiness. So it's, it, it, the, the, the scripture is clear that our chastening is for our good. His chastening of us is for our good. It's not a, uh, a malevolent, spiteful chastening. It's a chastening in love. Uh, that's what the scriptures reveal about the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with his church. Um, any questions so far? This, this marvelous description of the Lord. Yes, Raymond. Yeah, so this kind of symbolism in this vision um, is... Um, it's over and over and over again we see the majesty and the glory and the uh, omnipotence um, and the authority of Christ. That's what this vision is um, is emphasizing. And we'll see in a minute what John's response to all this was. Uh, but yeah, this, this magnificent picture of Christ shows him, remember the setting though, it's, it's right in the middle of the seven lampstands. So this is Christ as Lord of his church. That's really the emphasis of this vision, the fact that he's right in the middle of the seven lampstands. Okay. Um, and then he speaks, and it, it's no longer trumpet-like. So he had described the first speaking. He, he, he said the voice was loud, and it was like a trumpet in verse 10. And now John describes the voice as like the sound of many waters. Uh, we'll see that imagery later in chapter 14, chapter 19 also. Uh, it's like the familiar mighty roar of the surf crashing into the rocks of the shore of Patmos. He's right there on Patmos, and he hears the waves smashing against the uh, uh, the waters, smashing against the, the rocks there. 
Um, and so that's an image that John can, can use to describe what he, he hears from the voice of Christ, the sound of many waters. The voice of the eternal God was similarly described in Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel chapter 43 says that God's voice is like the sound of many waters. And so here we have yet another parallel affirming Christ's deity. So we see this over and over again in Scripture, and there are, there are those who... Um, uh, try to deny the divinity of Christ, but the scripture is filled with these passages which affirm the deity of Christ. Ezekiel 43, describing God's voice as the sound of many waters. Here we have in the book of Revelation, Jesus' voice described as this, like the sound of many waters. The voice of sovereign power. The voice of supreme authority. Uh, the very voice that will one day command the dead to come forth from the grave. Uh, described in John chapter 5. So that's the, the voice, the sound of the voice of uh, this, this description of the sound of many waters, the voice of Christ's authority, and once again, it's right in the center of the seven golden lampstands, the voice of his authority in the church is the emphasis. Of course, his authority extends beyond the church, but that's the emphasis here. When Christ speaks, the church must listen. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Christ speaks to his church directly through the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. So how does he speak to us? He speaks to us in the scriptures, including right here in the book of Revelation, but also including the entire council of scripture. That's how he speaks to his church. And... Um, the book of Hebrews, that Hebrews chapter 1, is just a great description of Christ's authority uh, to speak to his church. And we see that again. He's speaking to his church uh, with a voice, the sound of many waters, a voice of great authority, uh, speaking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, speaking to his church. And we'll see, starting in chapter 2, some very specific things that he says to specific churches for the first century and for all of us all the way up to today. All right, continuing along, verse 16. So we have a description of his clothing, a description of his person, description of uh, his voice. And now we see a description of something else that's there. Verse 16 says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So as the head of the church, and Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 1, Christ is definitely the head of his church. As the head of the church and the ruler of the kingdom of uh, God's beloved Son, Christ exercises authority in his church. In John's vision, Christ is holding in his right hand, so this is his authority, he's holding in his right hand, the seven stars. And those seven stars are identified in verse 20 as the angels, angeloi, or messengers of the seven churches, and symbolize the, those authorities, authority over the church, authority in the church. Now, angeloi is the common New Testament word for angels, leading some interpreters reasonably to conclude that angels are in view in this passage. But the New Testament nowhere teaches that angels are involved in the leadership of the church. 
angels do not sin and thus have no need to repent. However, these messengers, along with the congregations they represented, are exhorted to repent. Angels don't repent. They don't need to repent. And so, most likely, this angeloi is just messengers. The word, a Greek word angeloi just means messengers. And angels, the beings that we know of as angels, are God's messengers. And so, the Greek word angeloi, messenger, is, is what we call the beings that God uses as his messengers. However, the, the Greek word angeloi just means messengers. And so, it can describe other kinds of messengers other than angelic messengers and from the context it seems like these are most likely human messengers the the messengers that actually delivered these letters end up delivering these letters to the churches could be could be elders or pastors of those churches so those that had authority over the churches yes um, several commentators think so uh, Robert L. Thomas the guy that um, wrote the book that they use at Master's Seminary to to do the book of Revelation. He says, yes, it's probably the elders or pastors of those churches. John MacArthur says the same thing. Um, so several of the commentators that seem to me to be the most trustworthy believe that's the case. Uh, it's not explicitly stated there, but I think that fits with the rest of the context, that these these messengers, Angeloi, are probably the human leaders of these churches that are the ones that are actually going to take the letter and read it, take it to the church and read it to the to each of those seven churches. Now, that word Angeloi is used in other places in the New Testament to mean messengers that are humans, not angels. Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 9, and James chapter 2 have the word Angeloi, and, it, and it's obvious from the context it means just a messenger that's a human person that's a messenger. Um, and so that's what the Greek word means, messenger. And in, in most cases, it means God's messengers, and you can tell from the context, and so we call them angels, and that's where we get the word angel from, the Greek word met for messenger. But the Greek word angeloid, in its essence, just means messenger. And so it can mean human messengers as well, and I think that's probably what it means here, although not everyone agrees. All right, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's presence also provides protection for his church. He's protecting his church. The sharp two-edged sword that came out of his mouth is used to defend the church against external threats. We'll see that in chapter 19 and chapter 21. But here it speaks primarily of judgment against enemies from within the church. Uh, those who attack Christ's church, those who would sow lies, create discord, or otherwise harm his people, will be personally dealt with by the Lord of the church with his sharp two-edged sword. Um, this is his sword of judgment, uh, sword of defense of his church. Uh, coming out of his mouth. That's what's in view here. Um, and so then we have John's vision of the glorified Lord of the church. It culminates in a description of the radiant glory of his face, which John can only describe as like the sun shining in its strength. So he's, she, what, what can John use? He's grasping for a good metaphor. What can he use as a good metaphor for the brightest possible thing that one can possibly imagine? The sun. That's the brightest thing that John can use as a description of what he's seeing in this vision. Face like the sun shining in its strength. So right in the middle 
of noonday with no clouds and you look right at the sun. That's what John's saying. That's what it's like. That was what it was like to look at the face of this glorified Christ. Like trying to look right up at the noonday sun. Like the sun shining in its strength. So the glory of God through the Lord Jesus Christ shines in and through his church, reflecting his glory to the world. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the result is that he is glorified, Ephesians chapter 3. So here he is, shining with this great glory in the midst of the seven lampstands. And so the church is, his glory is the source, and the church is supposed to reflect that glory to the Lord. Uh, That's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 3. So then we come to the end of this vision. Um, There's just a few more verses left. Uh, I want to leave some time for questions. So let's get through just these last few verses. So verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his... So this is John's reaction. He's seen this vision, and this is his response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So remember who John is. John is a close personal friend with the man Jesus. Right? He had spent three years with him, eating with him, walking along the road with him, talking with him. But this is different. When he sees Christ glorified, he falls down like a dead man. This this man who was a close personal friend with Jesus, he wasn't constantly falling down like a dead man when he knew Jesus in his first coming. But when he sees the glorified Christ, this guy that knows Jesus better than any human who ever lived, he falls down like a dead man at his feet. Um... So he's been dramatically altered by seeing this vision. Uh, devastating fear uh, of, this, of the risen Christ. Uh, the, the Lord removes his fear by assurance and then by giving John a sense of duty, as we'll see. Uh, and so this is similar, uh, in a manner similar to his experience of the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was at this point about six decades earlier. We saw in Matthew 17, he was again overwhelmed with terror at the manifestation of Christ's glory. He falls at his feet like a dead man. So this is in stark contrast. Whenever you, see, whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I saw God, um, and, and, they're, and they're not reacting like John reacted here, um, this is a frivolous claim. Uh, everybody who sees the glory of God reacts like John reacts here. And so if somebody comes saying, I, I saw the Lord, and, and they're not falling down like a dead man, they, they didn't see the Lord. Um, they may have seen something, but they didn't see the Lord. Yeah, so um, he, he's, he's showing that he has the authority over the church, but he's also approachable, right? He, he, he puts his hand on John's shoulder, and he, and he tells him not to be afraid. And so this is the, the Christ that's almighty, all-powerful, all authority in heaven and on earth, but particularly here in his church, but approachable. 
giving assurances that we can that John can stand up and talk to him. Yes. But yeah, so so but Christ does reassure him and tells him not to fear. Don't be afraid. Because the the natural reaction to seeing the glory of the risen Christ is to be afraid, is to have this this holy, awesome fear. And Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Um and so if somebody comes to you with a story of seeing Christ, um, at, well, uh, ask them, what did you do? Um, and, and if they didn't fall down like a dead man, then you got to be skeptical. Um, so summarizing the proper response to God's holiness and majesty, the writer of Hebrews exhorts believers to offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we should have a, pro- a proper reverence and awe um, of the Lord. Um, as he had done so long ago at the Transfiguration, Jesus placed his right hand on John and comforted him, just like he did in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, there is comfort for Christians overwhelmed by the glory and majesty of Christ in the assurance of his gracious love and merciful forgiveness. Uh, Jesus' comforting words, do not be afraid, reveal his compassionate assurance of the terrified apostle and of us too. The comfort Jesus offered was based on who he is and the authority he possesses. He identified himself first as I am, ego ami in Greek. And that's the covenant name of God in Exodus chapter 3, I am. So he starts out with I am. It was that name with which he had comforted the terrified disciples who saw him walking on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 14. He said, I am. He took that name for himself in John chapter 8, I am. Uh, Before Abraham was, I am. He told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and of course they knew exactly what he was claiming. In verse 59 they picked up stones to stone him. Um, so he has identified himself in a number of times during his human ministry as I am. He does the same thing here in Revelation. And next he calls himself the first and the last, a title used of God in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 44 and 48. Uh, when all false gods have come and God only he remains. He existed before them, and he will continue to exist eternally long after they have forgotten they have been forgotten. I am. Jesus' application of this title to himself is, yet again, another powerful proof of his deity. It's a, uh, a direct claim to deity again, which he has done several times in his earthly ministry. He does it again here. Uh, he claims the title, I am, the covenant name of God for himself. Uh, the third title of deity he claims here is the living one. Uh, that also is the title used throughout Scripture to describe God. Joshua chapter 3, 1 Samuel 17, on and on and on and on and on. The living one is a description of God. And so once again, these are titles of divinity that Christ is giving himself. I am, the first and the last, the living one. All titles of divinity from the Old Testament that Christ is claiming for himself here uh, in the book of Revelation. And so God is the eternal, uncaused, self-existent one, and that's what Christ is claiming for himself here in this passage. So, uh, and then he makes this paradoxical statement, seeming paradoxical statement, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
Um, and that's assurance to the church. So he's, he's proclaiming these things while standing in the midst of the seven lambs dance. So he's proclaiming to the church, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Assurance for the church in times of persecution in the first century, times of persecution all the way through the centuries up to today. Uh, the living one, the eternal self-existent God who could never die, became man and died. So that's a paradox. A, a God who can't, can't die becomes man and dies. Uh, Peter explains in 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In his humanness he died without ceasing to live as God. Uh, we get the statement, Behold, I told you about this last time. Very strong word in the Greek. Behold introduces a statement of amazement and wonder. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Uh, he lives forever in union of glorified humanity and deity according to the power of an indestructible life. That's how Hebrews 7 describes it. According to the power of an indestructible life. That truth provides comfort and assurance to the church as he stands there in the midst of his church. He's not going away. He's alive forevermore in the midst of his church. As the eternal I am, the first and the last, the living one, Jesus holds the keys of death and of Hades. Uh, those terms are essentially synonymous with death being the condition and Hades being the place. And keys, of course, denote access and authority. I've got the keys. I have access and I have authority over death. Is what Jesus is saying here. And then uh, verse 19 wraps it up. The astounding vision of John saw inspired him in him a healthy tension between fear and assurance. So he's afraid, but Jesus reassures him. And to that was added <coughs> a, a reminder of his duty. So Christ's earlier command to write is now expanded. So Christ had told him, what we saw in um, uh, last week's study, had told him to write. And now he expands this a little bit, uh, what he's telling him to write. He commands him to write and record three, f uh, three features of the writing. First, the things which you have seen. The vision John had just seen and recorded in verse 10 to 16. So write that down, this vision you just saw. Next, the things which are. A reference to the letters to the seven churches, which we're going to get to in chapter 2 and 3, which describe the present state of the church. And finally, John was to write the things which will take place after these things. The prophetic revelation of future events unfolded in chapter 4 to 22. So he's told to write the things which you've seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. Threefold. Threefold command provides an outline for the book of Revelation, encompassing from John's perspective the past, the present, and the future. All right, so that's what we learned today. Uh, we learned about this vision of the glorified Son. We have the setting of the vision, the unfolding of the vision, and then we have all of Christ's, uh, the, the things about Christ as he stands in the center of the seven lampstands. Lamp he empowers his church. He intercedes for his church. He purifies his church. He speaks to his church with great authority. He controls his church. He protects his church. And Christ's glory is reflected in his church. And then we get the effects that the vision had on John. So five minutes. Questions? Yes. Yeah, so Hades is a place. Um, it's... Um, 
it's one of the ways of that the, the Bible describes hell, and so there there are some different Greek words for he- hell. Hades is one, um, uh, Tartarus is another one, uh, but it's a place where um, people go after death. A place uh, uh, death occurs. Hades is a place that. Um, souls go. Um, so, but it's not. So, um, it's there's, that's a little bit complicated, and so um, there's there's two places, there's three places that actually reference. So there's Hades, there's Tartarus, and so Tartarus is described in the book of Second Peter and in the book of Jude as a place where fallen angels were thrown and enchained, uh, going back to Genesis chapter 6. Hades is described as a place uh, where the dead go. And then we'll get to the lake of fire. And and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Um, And so there's, there's multiple and it's there's a there's a little bit of subtlety and complication in using the English word hell. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that in scripture. And we're gonna get to some more details about that as as we go through. But just know that it's a little bit more complicated than just the English word hell. Yeah. So uh, re- remember what Jesus said to the um, to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Right. So, um, but there's there's still a little bit. So there's a lot we don't know. Of course, you know this. Yes. Correct. So Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, uh, interceding for us. Um, Christ told the thief on the cross, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Um, now, the the question that makes things a little bit more complicated is um, how do we how do we measure the passage of time? What, what is time? So sort of an artificial construct, it's the passage of physical events. So the, the passage of physical activity is how we measure time. So like you, a cesium clock, for example, you measure time because there's a certain um, a radioactive decay. So and there's physical processes, the only way that we can measure time. Well, what happens when there are no physical processes? What, what does time mean when you're, there are no such thing as physical processes? Um, and, oh, by the way, so God in the beginning created uh, matter, space, and time in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, he, he created matter, space, energy, matter, space, energy, and time, all four of those things. And so God is outside of time. So he's not, so he, he can see everything, past, present, and future, the same way that we see the present. So he's outside of time. And so for us, stuck in time, it's very, very difficult for us to... to uh, to be able to comprehend that. What does it mean to be outside of time? Uh, and so when when we die and there are no longer any such thing as physical processes, how, how do you measure time? How do you understand time? Um, and so that adds a, a huge layer of complication to, to what it means to today you will be with me in paradise. What, what does that mean? 
for the guy that just died and there's no longer any such thing as time, no physical processes, um, I don't, I don't know. It's, but it's a complicated thing to wrap your mind around philosophically. Is what does that mean? We're yes, <clears throat> we're present with the Lord. Yes, 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 yeah. So that's right. That, that's exactly right. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. So you don't, you don't go to purgatory or you know somewhere you gotta wait. You're in the presence of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. So, the thief on the cross. Today you will be in paradise, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul said that. So um, the the only complication philosophically for us to try to wrap our minds around is well, what does time even mean when there are no physical processes? Yeah. So um, it's I don't know. No, I, I don't know. Uh, it's a it's a worthy speculation, um, but we I don't know. I don't know. But it seems like it's a new heavens and a new earth, and so it seems like there would be physical processes. Yes, yes. Uh, so I would guess that there is time. Yeah. So my, I suspect that because there are physical processes in new heavens and a new earth, there's probably probably time there. Yeah. But, yeah. But so God sees the end from the beginning, and so uh, for God that suggests um, something other than the way we see sequence. Uh, if he's at the beginning, but he can see the end, for him, those are occurring at the same time. So what does that mean uh, for, for this idea of sequence that we're absolutely trapped in? What does that mean for God? So, so yes, so all I'm trying to point out, I'm not trying to, uh, I, I hope I didn't confuse anybody. I, I'm, I'm trying to point out that things, that God's perspective is different from our perspective. And when we try to wrap our minds around in the in, infinite, it, 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 our minds quickly unravel. Trying to trying to understand how God can always have been and always will be, and how He can see the end from the beginning, and those sort of things are are very very difficult for a finite mind to wrap itself around. And I think we get to some of those issues when we talk about um, death and and what happens when you die, those sort of things. It, it it starts to it starts to make my Brain hurt and smoke come out of my ears when think about yeah there, there you go all right uh, we've run out of time I'm, I apologize let me uh, let me close this in prayer dear heavenly father we thank you so much for the assurance that we have that you stand in the midst of the seven golden lampstands that you are with your church in in power that you're uh, that you're there protecting us that you're there uh, that you've promised that you'll always be with us even to the end of the age and uh, what a great promise that is Lord and we are so thankful and grateful that you as Lord of the church are are present and you're so glorious but but yet you put your hand on our shoulder and you tell us not to be afraid and uh, we thank you Lord and we pray as we uh, get ready to uh, to engage in corporate worship that uh, the worship that we offer you would be acceptable in your sight and that we would bring great glory to your name as we worship you and we pray these things in Jesus precious name. Amen.